What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Today's guest is an expert in the hospitality industry with over 25 years of experience as an innovative leader. He's driven his company to accomplish over 13 billion in transactions, establishing his firm as the third most successful US brokerage firm within the hospitality industry. When he's not busy pioneering, he hosts weekly Teague Walks and Teague Talks, where he highlights exceptional properties and the people behind them. He's the recent recipient of the Jack A. Schaefer Financial Advisor of the Year Award given to him at Alice this year. He is the president and CEO at Hunter Hotel Advisors. Ladies and gentlemen, Teague Hunter. Welcome, Teague. Woo, hey, Dan, how are you? I'm great. Uh, really good. It's nice to be back in the city after being out in Milan for the Salone um, show. And uh, I wish I had more time out there, but it's an honor to speak to you. So thank you. And before we get into it, I just want to share with the audience. Um, my first experience of you, whether I don't know if you know, was in 2021. You host the Hunter Conference and obviously COVID happened, but to go into that first real conference for our entire industry in, I believe it was March or April of 2021, where everyone for the first time gathered together, there were, I don't know, a thousand plus people all in a room. And it was, it was so necessary. And I think such a form of exemplary leadership by you and your whole team to just say, look, we're in hospitality. We have to do this. And I just want to say thank you for kind of uncorking us and shooting us out of the champagne bottle after COVID. So thank you. Oh, that's hilarious. You're kind. And that long intro was great too. I was, I should tell my mom all the things I've done. Yes, yes um, you should. Yeah, we were, it's March of 21. That was, that was a gutsy thing to do for, uh, to come back. We got lucky. We timed it right. That was in between, uh, variants. So everybody's feeling pretty confident. Yeah. Yeah. Well, another thing that I think is really important about that is, you know, I've been doing this podcast for about mm, a year and a half and Someone who I always ask like for help or advice as a mentor before I do these things is Glenn Hausman, who I know you know. And he said, he's like, well, I'm going to this uh, Hunter conference. Why don't you tag along with me? And like, you can carry my bags or something. I was like, I would love to. And I think that that's so much of what we all do and why we all do it. It's this idea of mentorship, mutual helpfulness. Um, and it just, I think it really makes our industry really, really special. So with that in mind, and I want to ask you the first question I ask everyone is, Teague, how do you define hospitality? Oh, that's your go-to question. I like it, Dad. It's the podcast. What is hospitality, I guess? Oh, all yeah. right. I see, I see what you're doing here. Uh, I think most, to me, most people would define hospitality as a, as a verb, or sorry, adjective, uh, operational, right? The operational side, uh, service, welcoming people into their homes, being hospitable. I, being in the real estate industry, tend to think of more of it as a noun. It's a hotel, it's a building, it's real estate and finance. 
Um, but I think more than that, obviously, probably to all of us, is it's an industry. It's a way of life. It's what we do. It's who we are. I was born and raised into the hospitality industry. I have worked and uh, made a life and a living and a career in the hospitality industry. Uh, and so for us, it is a way of life. And uh, there's another interesting thing in hearing you say that as far as being born into it. There's so many multi-generational um, businesses that do really well and others that don't do, do very well. And I know that you guys have really plotted this amazing trajectory where you've let those, I think the most exciting thing about a multi-generational business is you get to let those relationships compound over time. So for those of listeners who are in family businesses or con contemplating, like what was your, your decision process on, do I get involved or not? Did you do something else first? Like walk us through how you decided to come on, come on to the mothership. Oh, I love it. You're, you're going way back. All right, let's do this. So, uh, I mean, you're right. Family businesses can be great. They can be tricky. They can be terrible. Uh, all of the above. Uh, we, I was, we have been very fortunate. We have a very strong family, mom, dad, Lee, and myself, and that's it. Uh, and the dogs. So a uh, very tight family. Uh, for me, it was sort of the best thing that I've done. So I, I didn't come. I've, you know, growing up, I was in, followed dad around. We'd go on family vacations. Uh, we'd drive to Florida. We'd stop in at, at hotels all along the way. Uh, I'm a curious by nature. So I would follow dad through all the hotels. Uh, the thing I remember is he would teach us, hey, what's the first thing you do when you walk into a hotel? You breathe in. Because after that, you get used to it and you don't smell anymore. So, hey, what do you see? What do you smell? Uh, I, I mean, I was looking at room types and, and real estate uh, for a long time. I wasn't going to join dad. I, my first job was a Merrill Lynch. Uh, decided I didn't like dealing with people's money. Your money is very expensive. Corporate money is not as expensive. So uh, then I went to IBM. My mom was a 30-year IBM exec. And I thought, IBM technology is the way of the future, business to business. Let's go. Oh, by the way, they have great sales training, which they did. But uh, I got there very quickly, um, realized that uh, I didn't care for corporate America. And at least for me, all of my mentors and anyone with talent was leaving. They would become successful because it was kind of a ceiling. I was the one working really hard, trying to be creative, trying to sell. Uh, was very fortunate winning sales awards at IBM, but I, along with everyone, would get promoted. So it, it didn't really matter. It was tough to differentiate yourself. So after three years at IBM, I came and begged my father for a job. I was like, what is, what is this hotel thing that we do again? I don't know. I don't really care. Uh, I'll, let's go. And I can remember early on, I really can, uh, as a hotel broker, thinking, um, well, I'm never going to sell a hotel. I mean, I, we saw, I saw my first one. It was a Holiday Inn in Millersville, Georgia to Canal Dave, um, institutional seller. And I, we got it done and it felt just so hard. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to sell another hotel in my life. And 13 billion transactions later. And 13 billion transactions later. And the world got easier. You know, when dad was doing it, it was how, you know, there was no internet. It was a fax machine. And how far the car could take you, how far could you drive in a day, knocking on doors, seeing people, building relationships then. Uh, and, and really, the industry was growing up. The Ahoa community was, was sort of just getting started. My dad still tells stories along with the other sort of icons in the Ahoa community with uh, HP Rama and um, the guys at Sri and all of these 
old. They they were saying, hey, we're here. This is who we are. We've just come from India. We want to buy hotels. And we have a lot of friends that are going to come too. So help us, teach us, and we'll introduce you. So we came about it that way. And it wasn't until later, you know, even the late 90s when uh, the first, when Wall Street really got into the space and the first REITs started was in the late 90s, 1998. Uh, and I think my father sold the first hotel to the first hotel REIT to get it started, which doesn't wow. exist today, but which the REIT doesn't exist today. They got gobbled up by bigger people. And then it wasn't until later that like private equity and Blackstone started jumping into the space and really, really changed our industry. Okay. So that's super interesting. So when those big private equity players came into it, how did it really change the industry from your perspective once all those, all the big New York money started coming in? Yeah. I mean, we're going into the finance world, but it just, it became a commodity. Uh, Wall Street just looks at it on a spreadsheet and they just see numbers. They don't really understand the operational nuances. They don't really understand the design nuances, mm. street corners, what makes stuff tick and not. They, they're just seeing numbers, right? Um, and that worked. That works um, as long as you can, uh, the cost of capital is cheap, debt is cheap, capital is plentiful. That works really well. So one of the first big ones, it was a, it was a high school friend of mine, Robert Bloom, uh, who at the time worked for Goldman Sachs, the Whitehall Fund. Um, and they bought Gary Theraldson's portfolio. So Gary Theraldson was a, a you know up in North Dakota had built a really nice limited service um, portfolio, and Wall Street wanted to buy it because they just saw cash flow and returns, and they could put out a lot of capital, charge a lot of fees. And he called me. He said, "Teague, I need to sit down with you." And so we sat down. I educated him on the business very quickly, and I remember saying, "What are you doing? You're supposed to be buying Ritz Carlton's and." You know, Manhattan, you know, big assets. You're not supposed to be playing in this world in, in North Dakota and Ohio. That What are you doing? And he said, oh, it's great. It's bulk, their size here. We really like it. Wow. Okay. And that just continued. So they bought Theraldson and they then they went and bought uh, uh, Howard Silver's company, uh, uh, Equity Inns which was a publicly traded company. And that's the first time a publicly traded company was taken private mm. by Goldman Sachs. So it changed. So uh, hearing you correctly, so from driving around in the in the station wagon, going down to Florida with your dad and going in and smelling and activating all of your senses and seeing the people and really getting a feel for it on one end of a spectrum to the other end of the spectrum where, okay, this is just printing money, private equity, writing big checks, let's do these big portfolio deals. Um, how have you seen the industry change over that time from riding around in the in the station wagon to these huge deals and all the, all the things in between? Like, how do you look at the spectrum of what our industry is at this moment from when you started? Well, I, I obviously think it's changed and it was a station wagon, wood paneling on the side. Fantastic. Uh, Oldsmobile uh, Classic 88, I think was the name. Anyway, so um, it has the truck. The I, truck. What was that called? The the uh, from your from uh, vacation. It was like the the truckster or the Clarkster. Yeah, the family Remember? truckster. Yeah. Um, that we were that we were the Griswolds. That was us, hundred percent. So, uh, but I think the industry has changed significantly for better and for worse. Right. So, one, a significant amount more capital has come in. Um, and I can even talk to the consumer side, which I won't, but the consumers become more demanding. 
right? We, we used to, it used to be the McDonald's. And the reason McDonald's was so successful is because there was no internet and you couldn't pre-search where you're going to go. I'm going to drive from Atlanta to LA uh, or just to Florida. And you better know, uh, uh, at that time, you just get in the car and start driving, right? And you'd see a sign, uh, Super 8 Motel 6 days in, and you'd pull off, right? Holiday Inn built all of their stuff. Hampton Inn, the reason Hampton, everybody remembers that. Bass, the beer company in London, bought Holiday Inn and moved all the execs to London. So now there were a bunch of execs in Memphis that didn't want to move to London. So what they do, they started a whole new company and that was called Hampton Inn, called Promise. And their brand was Hampton Inn, their first one. And they just went right next door to Holiday Inns and built the rooms. And they knew that the restaurant, ironically, the restaurant and the meeting space at the Holiday Inn didn't make money. The rooms made the money. So they built a brand new Hampton Inn right next to that old Holiday Inn and they ate their lunch. So that was the growth of Hampton Inn. And then they promised did uh, Homewood Suites, Embassy, Doubletree, and eventually sold to Hilton and rolled it in. Sorry, I digress. We're talking history lesson. No, but I love the history because, you know, um, the evolution of hotels as an asset class is it's pretty remarkable. And especially now in this, you know, really high inflationary period, it's a, it's one of the few long-term assets where you can reset leases like on a nightly basis. Right. right. So in a way it's, it's, it's a, it's a nice hedge against inflation. How are you seeing that particular element of what, of what we do in our world as, as far as like an attractive place for investors to drop money? So I'm not going to answer the question. I'm going to stay on the history, but, but as an example of inflation, the early Hampton Inns were cost $55,000 a key to build. They were two story exterior quarter. They cost 55,000 a key to build. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, We sold one uh, last year for over 300,000 a key. And now we're valuing some at over 500,000 a key for what is roughly the same product. We we sold the end on fifth down to Naples for $1.3 million a key last year. Wow. Right. So there's your evolution of the world, right? And, and if okay. I keep going history, Motel 6 was six, $6. Super 8 was $8. Wow. Wow. Um, when you and what did about- you pay last night? What, what are you paying tonight at your hotel in New York? Oh, no, I'm going to drive home and sleep in my uh, in my bed tonight. So I'm not going <laughs> to, won't, I won't be doing that tonight. But uh, I, I'd probably say they're, you know, in the, Three fifty to seven hundred dollars a night, um, all over the place. Like for for basic. Exactly. Um, when you look at the at the asset class, so that noun again of hotels, right? And compared or contrasted to other commercial real estate verticals, the most of the people who are listening to this, although it's grown since we've started and it keeps growing every week. They're, they're designers or architects. They're, they're kind of like building out and creating these spaces. Um, but cell space, rather as contrasted to other asset classes, cost, which is always the last line item on a, on a budget, um, it's a lot more within hotels than other asset classes. So when you have someone who's new looking to buy a hotel, um, how do you walk them through that if they're used to doing offices and whatnot, that 
oh, this that you're going to be spending a lot more or investing a lot more on FF&E. How do you how do you get them over that? Uh, I like it. We're going to get into the weeds. The real question on FF&E today, because to your point, it used to be all, all rooms and now we have rooftop bars and a restaurant and a bistro in the lobby. Uh, the real question is, is do those sell at six caps, seven caps? Because our really good hotels are selling in that range. Not so much at the moment, but they were. And a restaurant wouldn't sell for that. A coffee mm-hmm. shop wouldn't sell for a six cap, right? It'd be 10 plus. Uh, mm-hmm. A bar would sell 10 plus. But we lump all the revenue and in- income in in one place and we sell it like real estate, like the hotel. So some of our uh, buyers are getting frustrated that we're overcharging them for this restaurant and this bar and this bistro. But I digress. I will tell you from an operational side, it's gotten tricky for the operators. Um, it used to be easy just to operate rooms. And now you've got all of these other outlets. So you're, it, it takes real expertise to be able to activate and properly manage all of those extra revenue sources. So what was a lot of mom and pop uh, owner operators and a lot of uh, uh, owner developers uh, they're great developers. Doesn't mean they're the best operators, especially at that complicated level. So the third parties are really stepping up because it's a real expertise to operate those complicated hotels. I completely agree. And it's also interesting because each hotel is also just like a little laboratory of entrepreneurism, right? Because you have all these different channels and then you can also just create new channels, which is basically just like creating new revenue streams. But it all becomes very complicated to manage for the, you know, for the more simple, just straightforward investor. Uh, correct. And and that's, I think that's also what we love about the hotel space, right? It's, it's not cookie cutter. It's not boring office building, uh, boring, but profitable industrial, um, you know, multifamily, those can get pretty straight down the middle. Hotels are operational and you can make a significant difference, both positive and negative, based on your level of operations. Really good operators, part of how we make trades is the really good operators look at that asset and say, I, I can do a whole lot better with this than that current existing operator owner is doing. And I can make significant improvements. So that's that's an interesting concept because are, are you, so if I were a hotel, are, are you seeing a change in hotel People who want to buy hotels, are they bringing in a new management company as they're surveying what's available out on the market and really having them kind of underwrite what they're seeing at a more detailed level? Or is it still the owner going in and then finding the the manager later? Like- no, no, the first way. And actually, that's our secret sauce as salesmen that we are. That's our secret sauce. Like, oh, uh, you, Mr. Seller, we're going to tell everyone you're a terrible operator. And the buyer is a much better operator and can do a significantly better job than the old guy that is operating that. Mm. The current team, they're they're they they're tired. They're uh, they they they're not putting any more energy or any more capital into this. The new team has got a lot more energy and enthusiasm and much better ideas, and they can get in there and really turn this around. And in the hotel space, that is very true. I really we've seen it time and time and time again. A really good operator can drive significant top line and bottom line revenue and a really bad operator can really impact. And then are, but do you find that um, ownership groups are married to a particular operator typically or management company, or they, um, 
Are they kind of agnostic or do they say, hey, this is my management company for repositioning. This is my management company for um, just kind of the bread and bender, as you said before, like just the the printing cash in North Dakota, you know, and there's all different ones. And do they kind of hitch their wagons to these entities as they're uh, reviewing and underwriting the, the assets? Yeah. You know, the joy in our business, it depends, right? We now have a very broad business, right? You can be mm-hmm. down at Motel 6, owner-operator level. You can be Ritz-Carlton and everything in between. Um, most people, this is a people business. So most most of the time, there's a, a synergy between ownership and operations, right? And somewhere in there is asset management, depending on how complicated you get. Uh, but many of the uh, owner-operators firmly believe the reason why they still operate their own stuff is because they can operate it better than anyone else at an institutional level. Is that because they're looking at it as they're, they're everything that they're doing, they're looking as an owner. They're they're more vested. Is that why? One, it's their, it's their penny. Okay. And, and the the owner operator community typically just grew up that way. There was no third party management, right? You owned one hotel and mom and dad bought the one hotel and they operated this one hotel. That still sort of happens today. Yep, we got this one. And they've just figured it out. And over time, they figured out what worked and what didn't work. And their friends figured out what worked and what didn't work. And they shared stories. And now they've just evolved uh, through the years and through the generations. And as the hotels have gotten nicer and nicer, their management styles and teams have evolved. But there's a lot of regional street cornerness to it. Whether it's the owner-operator or the institutional management companies, there's a brand, there's a type of asset, and there's a region. You better, have, you better have a team to support that asset, right? Whether it's owner operator or whether it's from the corporation, you better have regional managers, on-site managers, hands-on managers. Uh, and that's, that's some people are better at full service. Some are better at select service. And it is not cookie cutter management. I know it seems like a commodity. It's not. So each each asset has its own unique set of needs and requirements, and then you would partner with a management company that could best grow within or operate and, and create value within those needs. Correct. So, and all management companies think they're better than their other management company. So they tell their right. how much better they could do. Okay. So th- then this, is, I, I wasn't expecting to go here, but recently I just, I've read it a couple of times, but I just heard um, Danny Meyer from Union Square Hospitality who did Shake Shack and he's like a big restaurateur and, um, in New York's in New York City, but now with Shake Shack all over the place. And he said something really interesting. Like if you look at businesses or the equity partners you're talking to, um, every decision should be made with the shareholders in mind, right? There's like a, a fiduciary requirement to do that, right? That's what you have to do. But he was saying for all of his businesses, he looks at, there are shareholders obviously, but then he looks at stakeholders. And in order of importance, he said, the stakeholders for his restaurants, and he would say he would say any business is team, like all the employees. Then it's the guests or 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 um, customers. Then the community around. Then the suppliers. Then the investors. And his his notion is that if you take care of the first four in the best way possible, then the last, which are the shareholders who should be first, reap the rewards. What are your thoughts on that? I, yeah, I'd, I I can concur with that. Um, again, it's tricky, but the although the investors right are the ultimate boss, but they are not 
feet on the ground, hands on the ground. And I even I would argue that even the investors know that the hotel space is an operational heavy business. So they know what they're getting into. They know they don't want to do it. So they're hiring a third-party operator to handle it. And all they care about is making money. So they're going to look at the bottom line. If the bottom line is higher, you guys are fantastic. If that bottom line is lower, you guys are doing something wrong. They don't really want to be in the weeds. They want to hire, maybe they hire an asset manager to manage the manager. But yes, I would agree with you. If you take care of the first crew, I mean, even if you're the best of your guests, today, the employees are the number one customer. Everyone knows that. Labor is so difficult. Labor is so hard. So you better take care of your people first. And then it all trickles down after that. Okay. Well, now I, I want to shift gears into the now. So recent, well, in the recent past, you won this financial advisor of the year award at Alice, which is where I saw you. And I was like, oh my God, Teague, I'm such a fan of your podcast. And I like, I want to get you on. And you're like, yes, totally. Uh, talk to talk to Mary Ashley. Let's get it going. And here we are right now. But what do you think separated you and Hunter from the rest of the pack that would uh, that would warrant receiving this accolade like that's pretty awesome i mean how how many you're the third biggest but there must be scores or hundreds of people like you what separates you guys from the pack yeah i i think uh one we're very proud of that it, it was sort of a lifetime achievement award for us um we we had a very very good year uh we sold over two and a half billion in the year and you know a lot of that is just the way the world was oh by the way we were going to sell four billion uh, until the world stopped the second half of 22, the world just screeched to a halt. Um, uh, So what probably was another 2 billion ended up as 500 million. That's how much sort of fell out Um, all true numbers. But, uh, but we we think it's our DNA, right? Who we come from, where we come from. Again, my thought, we're a family business for better or for worse that has been able to institutionalize what we do, but at our core, we are a family business. Our team is our people. Everybody talks about the people. My our, our team is better. We firmly believe than the majority of the teams that are out there. Um, we work well together. We work as a team. We are not siloed in any sales organization. You can get siloed. Oh, I have my territory and these are my people and don't come in, don't talk. We are the total opposite. Everything is wide open. Everybody talks all day, every day. Um, and that we can throw whatever resources we want to at it because it it sort of is controlled at the top because we're tightly held. Everyone jumps on board to help. Uh, we're fortunate to have really good clients. Blackstone's our biggest client. I joke that's not that's not a real uh, bragging right because they're a lot of people's biggest client. But we sold over 100 hotels last year just for Blackstone. Um, so they have long long tentacles, and they're they're the toughest of the tough, the best of the best. They they. Their people are incredibly smart. They never sleep. Uh, and they have trained us over the last, God, gosh, probably decade on how to think, how to work, uh, how to react, how to be responsive all day, every day. And Blackstone wants another 10%, another 10%, how to get deals done. Um, and we have we have really had to up our game. So our, it's a team award. It's a lifetime achievement award. Uh, we're very pleased with it. We shouldn't compete, as I joke every day. We shouldn't be able to compete with the institutional CBRE and Jones Lang Sal and Eastill. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just people, just people working for them, people working for us. Uh, and we're very impressed with our people. Yeah. Wow. Because then that all like going back to what you said earlier, just 
driving around in the station wagon with your dad or, and your family, it's going in and getting to know the people, right? It's the, it's, and again, it's that all of those relationships. And I think on that multi-generational side, that's what's so exciting to me is that those relationships get to compound. Um, aside from all the interest and everything else, this gets to compound over that. Time yeah. Also. I joked when I, when I, and I say to sort of the next generation, when I came in the business, right. I was, I was young and I, I didn't know anyone. Fortunately, my father did back to that mentorship. I think mentors are very important. And mm-hmm. we do that at the company. I, we, we match up the older salesman with the, with the younger salesman and the older people to have all the relationships and the younger people do all the work. So it's, mm-hmm. it's very easy, but, but the younger people grow up just like myself. I can remember watching the people 10, 15 years ahead of me uh, thinking, all right, all right, I see what they're doing. But part of that was we've just got time just as I grow up. So now all the people, my generation are all the leaders of this, of these industries. They just are. Dan mm-hmm. Hansen was running Summit. Justin Knight was running uh, Apple. Marcel Verbas is running Xenia. Um, all of these people or have now now moved up and are and are running these companies, and that too will happen with the next generation. Yeah, well, and I think on that next generation side, I think that's a great segue into how did you decide to start a podcast? Because, like to me, I just did it as like an experiment. Uh, people said, "Oh, I was good at interviewing people," and then I just it turned into one of my favorite things I do all week. And I just get to really, I'm just very curious. I get to learn so much more, but like, what really gave you the push to start? That's a good answer. Cause I was going to ask you, how did you, how did you oh, get started? I, yeah. You can ask me again and I'll, I'll, I'll be more than happy to expound on it, but I don't want to take away from your time. So ours was, um, ours was canceling the conference in 2020. So it was a traumatic experience internally back to the team. Cause you have this team that is planning for a year, planning a conference, which is like throwing a wedding or a big party and it's a big event and here it comes. And arguably on the eve of it, Thursday before the conference was supposed to start on Monday, uh, we had to cancel. And that was a major, major issue. So we did that. And part of it, I will say is I felt guilty because uh, one of the major reasons we do the conference, my father started the conference 34 years ago uh, and it was just a way to give back. He thought that there was, uh, people in the industry, Main Street people, not Wall Street, et cetera, that needed information. They needed to come together and learn from each other. He always called it meat and potatoes. I want people to learn. So we felt, have always felt an obligation to give back to the industry, to educate the industry, to bring people together. And here was a really critical time of uncertainty when more than ever people needed to know what is happening. And we did the exact opposite. We sent everybody home, go home, go hide. And good luck. So part of that was 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 guilt and a real sense of we got to connect the community. Um, and we were still coming into the office because we were unwinding the conference. And Mary Ashley said, "Teague, may I record one of your next Zoom calls?" Sure. So uh, we chose a friend, Mitch Shaw, and I said, "Mitch, can we can we record one of these?" We recorded it. Mary Ashley put it together. Um, and we sent it to Mitt's team. They said, yeah, we like it. We posted it, not knowing if anyone would care. And everyone cared. Everyone watched it. I got all kinds of phone calls and texts and emails over that. And so then we just can, did it again. And we called the speakers that were at the co- coming to the conference anyway. Hey, I know you're going to speak next week. We're sorry we had to cancel. Um, would you mind if we resorted, re- record a Zoom call? I just did it with Mitt. Here's what we'd like to see. So, so we had everyone. I mean, you know, 
Chris Nassetta at Hilton. And uh, I mean, Arnie, God love my, my favorite one was with Arnie at Marriott. Oh my God. Uh, and the interesting part was then people were calling me saying, can I please get on your uh, team talks? Can I please get on your podcast? Can I please get on? Great. Wow. And, the, and the best ones were the people that people related to, which was the operators. Hey, I've got 20 hotels, 50 hotels, and, and I'm having to lay all my people off. Are you laying? And that's really hurting, but I, I don't want to do that. I'm questioning, what are you seeing? Are you having to do the same thing? Are you keeping your hotels open? Are you closing your hotels? A lot of yeah. people were closing a lot of their hotels. They'd never closed hotels before. That That's a thing. So we, we had to connect people. Um, as you said, Arnie, and I, wa I watched your face light up as you talked about him, um, yeah. it gave me goosebumps because- Two weeks ago, I went. I was lucky to be invited to the Howard University ribbon cutting of the um, Marriott Sorensen Center for Hospitality Leadership up in D.C. And his, I don't know. Everyone got up there and, and spoke. But his, when his wife Ruth got up there and spoke, and just about, um, I've met Arnie a couple times in, in passing. I said hello, shook his hand, never really had a deep conversation with him. But just to hear her share how curious he was and how he was a student of everything. And then to look at all these kids, young men and women at Howard, this first cohort that's coming through and seeing them kind of stand on the shoulders of him and, and have all these doors open to them. And just, it's just so powerful and amazing. And I know he's gone and I know he'll be missed, but just being there and seeing that and feeling it, and having Mr. Marriott sit like two a, a, a chair in front of me being there as well, that was amazing. Um, but I just feel like that um, that's going to resonate for a really, really, really long time. And it was just very moving and impactful. And I'm so I I, I have to listen to that uh, record uh, the one you did with Arnie because I actually haven't. So now I want to go back and do it. So thank you for for sharing that. That's amazing. They're great. It's part of what you forget. I mean, I'm not really of the podcast generation, although we are, um, I wouldn't have started it today, but we mm -hmm. did, but I've gone back and watched a bunch of them and they're, they're a lot of fun with the history and just the people it personalizes our industry and they're recorded. They're there forever. So go totally. watch. Well, also and going into mentorship as well, one of the, I get a lot of feedback, um, from the podcast that we do. And one is a lot of students, a lot of, uh, recent grads who are just starting out on their career journey, and I feel like with all this hybrid work that's happening, um, there's not as much shop talk that goes on. There's not as much as the beer or wine after work or waiting for, I don't even know if people use coffee machines anymore, but waiting for waiting at the coffee machine or at the water cooler. And people are like, wow, these podcasts are amazing because they kind of like round out my education in a way. Yeah, Do you yeah. get feedback like that? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. One, we're, we're aging ourselves with a coffee machine because uh, I agree. <laughs> the water machine. cooler. The vax machine, the water cooler. Uh, I get professors, uh, Georgia State, um, Penn State, um, uh, Michigan State, but the professors who have required requirements for their classes, the, the humbling that they have to go watch certain podcasts. They've told me they have to watch mine. And oh. and I've had the students come up and say, we're required to watch yours, but they're really good. We learn a lot. So that, that becomes wow, that's the pressure amazing. that I'm hoping for. Okay, now you've given me a new uh, a new life goal. I need professors to be referral partners on that on that front. Um, okay, so we've made it through COVID. We last year went through a huge pause. Um, interest rates are going crazy right now. So business is never easy. But when you look at 
your team, your investor, or your clients, the investors behind them, um, what's exciting you most about the future that you see right now? Oh, um, that's uh, two different answers. But the most exciting thing right now is, uh, ironically, growth. Um, and what I mean by that, it, Hunter, we as a company, Hunt grew the most out of the last recession. I'm going to call it the GFC, Great Financial Crisis. So we grew the most in 2010 through 2012. We were a small regional company. And after that, after 2012, we had dozen offices across the country. Um, they're not all still with us, but we learned a lot. And part of that was, ironically, you think you grow in the busy times, but you don't because you're too busy as a firm. It's in the slower times and the tougher and a little more chaos that people are looking. People are looking to make a change. Uh, there's just more movement and more change out there. So if you're smart and strategic and have the right relationships, that's times when people are comfortable to move. So I can already tell you, again, one, we have the time to focus on people, not just doing deals. Um, and so I, we, Hunter, will grow more in the next two years, I predict, than we did in the last two years. And I really mean that as team size, not, not really deal volume that will come, but in team size, we, we will grow. We'll, we will awesome. expand our capital markets group, which has been very lagging. That has to. We will expand in the different markets where we have to where we have to be. Texas, uh, we have tons of Florida coverage. Uh, we will grow in California as well. Um, we'll grow in Texas, a little bit of the Midwest, Mid Atlantic. We we opened a New York office, a Miami office, an LA office. We have all those people that joined us in the last several years, or or hell, we've been in California for over a decade. But we'll grow with people. And that's probably the most exciting part because the deal size is very complicated. We can talk about that if you want, but the deal size is very complicated right now. Yeah. So that, again, hearing you just say people, 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 that's the first stakeholder towards great results, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So talk to me about the complication. Actually, before you talk about the complication, um, when you look at who would, who you're recruiting and where you want to recruit and, the, and how the, you want to grow your people. Um, What's the sweet spot for you at Hunter and all of your team? Like, where do you find yourself playing in the hotel sandbox, so to speak? Yeah, we're, we see ourselves really, we're, we're kind of in the middle. We're liaison between Wall Street and Main Street in that, you know, upper select service business. Okay, we do some economy, we do some luxury, um, but we are the liaison between Wall Street and Main Street. When Blackstone wants to go buy a hotel, they're not going to buy one. They're going to buy 50. And the, so we're going to sell your entire company once you're done with it to Blackstone. And then we're going to reverse the gear. If Blackstone's done with it and they want to sell, we're going to sell those assets down to the individuals. Okay. Right. So we sold a bunch of Motel 6s. We're currently selling ESAs for them. Ironically, we're selling senior housing for them right now. But we're going to sell a bunch down. We're selling all kinds of uh, uh, Hamptons and courtyards and residence inns and their limited service out of the B-REIT, one of their platforms, um, mostly in Florida at the moment, a um, lot in the Southeast, but all across the country. So we're constantly selling for those guys. Um, Wall Street to Main Street, that's our niche. And we think we understand both niches better than anybody else. We can speak to Main Street. Our DNA is in, we can speak to Wall Street. Our DNA is in Main Street. 
And we think awesome. we do that better than anyone else. Um, from a people standpoint, our people are the most exciting thing, as we've said. Uh, and we're not so much on trying to fill holes geographically. We are very much on hiring people who fit our culture. And if you fit our okay. culture, then and you're part of the team and the whole team signs off. It's not just Teague. It's the entire team. If the entire team signs off, great. If the entire team does not sign off, then sorry, that's not going to work for us. Um, we don't just give people a business card and say, hey, I really hope you make it. No, if you're brought in, you're one of the team, you're one of the family. We joke. You got to change your last name, get a tattoo. We allow hyphenations. But we really take a caring to everyone that comes that we allow into our team. So I want to go back to something you said, like when you would first walk into a hotel with your dad when you were a kid and he would he would smell, right? Because that sense is often overlooked. But I've heard so many entrepreneurs um, who are in the, uh, just entrepreneurs, they have their own company or people who are looking to acquire companies regarding culture. They say when they can walk, when they walk into an office, they can smell the culture if it's good, bad or whatever. So like, and I love that you're talking about people and culture because this comes up so much in a lot of these conversations. But when you, as you're looking for new people to come onto your team, when that, when that new recruit comes in or a new prospect of someone that might join your team, what do they smell when they walk into one of your offices or, or, or not even, it's not even about the office. It's like, what do they smell when they encounter your team, all the people that have to sign off? Like what, what's that archetype of person? Yeah. I mean, I think they'll tell uh, right off the bat. I mean, it sort of comes from me, but lots of energy, uh, lots of sophistication. There's a work hard, play hard mentality. You got to talk to talk and walk the walk. Uh, and a fierce sense of loyalty. So my, my team is fiercely loyal to me, to each other. And I think that I like to think it comes from me because I'm fiercely loyal to them, which again, I, I ultimately learned from my father. He was not someone who was trying to cut me out. He was someone who's trying to help bring me along and make me better. And the better he made me, the better that made him and the better that made the entire company. So that's how we treat everybody. Wow. I mean, that's that's wonderful. And then like, as far as for anyone listening right now that you're looking to hire and add to your team, um, like if you were to pitch them on something, what would you say? I mean, <laughs> I think I think I would say instead of a, a conference room, we have a golf simulator in the office. Mm. Great. So for anyone who wants to come join a huge growing team that has that works hard and plays hard, but also loves golf, reach out to Teague. Correct. And, and the fun part, that wasn't my idea. That was the team's idea. They, they saw it, uh, my saw it on the, on the, the, the new office space sheet. Hey, here's the cost for the conference room, right? Here's the table, the chairs, the AV equipment, all of that. And he jokingly said, you know, for the cost of that, we could get a golf simulator. And next thing you know, we headed down the path and for that, and a, a, probably a whole bunch more money, we have a golf simulator. And how are the calluses on your hands? Right yeah, now? we use it every day. You get on a conference call, you put an earbud in, you go in there and swing, hit a few balls. It stretches you out when you're tired of sitting in a chair for a long time. You get up. It's great. And on the in on Thursday afternoons, Friday afternoons, when the team is winding down, they'll crack a few cocktails and and challenge each other to golf events. I love it. Okay, so now. Um, I want you, the Teague I'm talking to right now, 
to magically appear in front of the Teague that was working at IBM before you're deciding to choose to go into the hotel industry, technology to people, to a people and a, a real, a real asset world. Um, the Teague that I'm talking to now, you like, what do you, what advice do you have for your younger self? I mean, I think I would say it's going to be okay. Um, because when you're young, you don't know the uncertainties are massive and huge. And yes, you got to have confidence and believe in yourself, which I did, but I, I just, you know, everything was sort of a struggle and you're fighting and it's the good energy that you're even having internal struggles of like, what am I doing and why am I doing here? And I was always frustrated with my managers and my bosses because they, we weren't go doing enough and we weren't doing it fast enough. We weren't doing it quick enough. Uh, and I vividly, this is an ego. I shouldn't say this, but I vividly remember sitting, uh, they'd call the entire Southeast together and we were in a, you know, at, at a big conference and the, the, the main guy that ran the Southeast at the time was up there giving the speech. And I just remember thinking, I can do that better. And I'm a 24-year-old, you know, know-it-all kid. And I remember thinking, he's not doing it right. I, I, I could do that better. Here's what he's missing. And part of that is I didn't think he had enough energy. I didn't think he was connecting with the people. I didn't think he was talking to, directly to us. We're the army. You got you to energize us. Let's go. We're, we're here. We're ready. And I just thought he missed all of that. He was arguably talking up to the analysts and, you know, to his bosses. He wasn't talking to us. And I, and so I always sort of flipped that around. So he was talking to, he wasn't talking to main street. I, he wasn't, he was talking up, not down. And I, and I, he needed to connect with us. And I think he, and he didn't. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I actually really love that idea of being the specialist between wall street and main street. Or the, the expert. I mean, that that adds so much incredible value as far as what you're doing as a as a business, um, the people you're trying to attract. Um, and Teague, if people wanted to learn more about you or T or or Hunter, like what wh where can they find you? How can they learn more? <laughs> I mean, uh, we weren't on the internet forever, but hunterhotels.net is the company, and then the Teague Talks and the Teague Walks, uh, you'll probably learn who we are real fast. Awesome. Well, um, again, I just, I'm so grateful that you had the time for me here. Um, I, I know that our listeners learned so much. Um, so I just want a, a heartfelt and gracious thank you to you, Teague, for being here with me and all of us listeners. Um, so thank you. And Dan, thank you for having me. Uh, and from the bottom of my heart, again, our, our podcast here is the same, at least. Uh, we're doing it. We're not trying to make money. We're trying to give back to the people. And I think there's a new generation that learns this way. So thank you for all you're doing uh, and keep up the good work. Thank you. And again, thank you to all of our listeners. If you haven't had a chance to listen to Teague Talks or Teague Walks, just Google it. You'll find it. I'll have links in the show notes as well. Um, thank you. And we keep growing every week. So if this changed your opinion on things or helped you learn a little bit more and you think someone else can benefit, please pass it along. It's all word of mouth and we appreciate you and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, Dan.